Today, Radical Personal Finance is live Q&A. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, a show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement that you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua Sheets. Today is Friday, February 12, 2021, and today we have a live Q&A show, a live Q&A show wherein uh, I open up the phones, you call in, talk about anything that you want, questions, comments, anything that you like. I haven't done these shows in a couple of weeks because it's been hard to arrange the internet, but today I'm sitting here at my desk, got an internet connection, so we're able to uh, to get it going. These shows work just like Call and Talk Radio, um, and if you would like to gain access to these shows, to call in and discuss some topic that's on your mind, uh, ask a question, talk about your situation, it's probably one of the best ways to, and cheapest ways to talk to me personally. Just go to patreon.com slash radicalpersonalfinance, search on Patreon for Radical Personal Finance. There you'll find all of the information as to how you can join me on uh, on one of these shows. Broadcasting today from beautiful Bogota, Colombia. Uh, and uh, so it's fun looking out my window at Bogota. I know that many of you right now are looking for places to go and uh, you're frustrated that you can't travel, especially most of the audience of the United States is, uh, sorry, most of the audience of radical personal finance is in the United States. So there is a little bit of a difficulty if you're going back to the United States as to now you have to have a negative PCR test for that. But if you're looking for a place to go, I strongly recommend that you uh, consider going to Colombia. I've been coming to Colombia for many years and I really, really like uh, Colombia. Bogota is a wonderful city, right up high at a high elevation, lovely weather, really, really beautiful. And Colombia is one of those places that's had an absolute transformation um, over the years. I just picked up a new book yesterday um, called uh, Un Mensaje Optimista para un Mundo en Crisis, an op- a message of optimism for a world in crisis. And it was written by um, Juan Manuel Santos, the last, the, the ex-president of Colombia. And it's really fascinating. It's basically just an argument from him as to, you know, how things have gotten so much better in Colombia over the last 30 years. Uh, and so if your impression or your picture of uh, Colombia is that it's stuck in kind of the 1980s drug wars and dealing with FARC and all of that. Um, most of that is in the past. Not to say there's not still things that are different or things that are are, are troubled. Of course there are. Not everywhere we live, right? Um, every country has problems, but it's really a, a wonderful place, and I would encourage you to check it out if you want it to. Hopefully, as we get back to um, uh, a coronavirus starts to become more predictable around the world as countries open their borders. Hopefully, we'll be able to get back and do more traveling as we go into the next part of this year. We begin today with Jeff in Florida. Jeff, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, sir? Thanks, Joshua. Uh, I am uh, considering a new job opportunity, uh, and both where I'm at and the new one are pretty equal in terms of intangibles, but vastly different in compensation structures. I'd love to hear you how you would think through uh, the two different compensation models of private versus government. Um, I could toss out ballpark numbers if you'd like, uh, and or we could just talk about tax advantaged accounts and you know retirement benefits. What would be kind of best for you to, yeah, start, to talk it through? Start with the nature of the job and then give us a little bit about the, the numbers and the packages that they're offering to you. Sure, so uh, the nature of the job is uh, kind of a nonprofit administration. Um, you know, the, uh, the work is, uh, is something I've been in for a long time. So I know it well and I'm comfortable in both roles. 
for perspective, my you know partner and I were, were both about six to seven years away from our fire goal. Uh, you know, I know it's a big if, but if historical averages are present, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and you know, pretty decent stability in in both positions. Um, as far as kind of the the government job is is the one uh, I'm in right now. A little lower stress, maybe a little less stable, uh, but a really good team that we're taking part of. Uh, the private sector one is a little more stable, uh, maybe slightly more stress, but uh, I've been there before, uh, so I know it well. And, you know, I'm uncertain of the team dynamics since I've left. Uh, so, you know, kind of the offers that are out there are the government job is, is this kind of step ladder, you know, position as normal. Uh, it's about a hundred, you know, I'll use round numbers, mm-hmm. uh, about a hundred K compensation, uh, between, you know, the 401k or 403b, but the 401k, the 457, the HSA are, you know, we're maxing them all out. Uh, there's 8k into kind of a 401a plan, but there's some strings attached about how that has to be invested and taken out. Um, it is matched by about another 8k if I vest, uh, no social security compens- or contributions. And so between, my partner and I were saving about 80K annually on about 160K of expenses okay. uh, or salary and match. Um, benefits are really great. Eight weeks of vacation and holidays, four weeks of sick leave, which multiple people with families have said they've taken them all. Um, but you have a little less control over your less savings, less control over your retirement funds. Um, and, but eventually in retirement, you get health insurance covered uh, at about 5% off per year work. So after 20 years, It'd be free. I'd probably make it to where health insurance is about 65% off. Okay. Uh, the private sector role, the compensation is a little better. Uh, it would be around 130K. Uh, there's a 401K with a 2% match, HSA. There's a pension. It's not COLA adjusted, but it is really well funded. So I'm pretty confident in their security. Um, and the pensions basically 2.5% of your cumulative salary uh, while you've worked there per year. Um, and then, uh, you know, if we were maxing all of those out and saving the rest to taxable, it would mean we'd have about 40K going into taxable annually and about 90K saved between me and my partner on about 190K of salaries and matches. Um, the soft benefits, five weeks vacation, one week of holidays, uh, or four weeks vacation, one week of holidays, five weeks time off, about two weeks of sick leave. Not totally sure how much people use that. Um, and in that one, there's just, more savings uh, and more control over the savings, fewer tax advantaged accounts to kind of play with. And, uh, but you do have the pension and would be paying into Social Security again. Um, but I would need to obtain health care in retirement uh, for a family, either through the marketplace or, you know, just paying at cost. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd probably be there for about five more years and then part time for another five. So mm-hmm. uh, those are the two things. The commutes are about the same. The bosses, I have strong relationships with both. Work-life balance, probably a little better with the government job um, and the opportunity for future positions, probably a little better with the private job. So, um, Do you have children? And just to, We do. Uh, two, two kids. And how old? Uh, one is a little over two and the other one is a little under one. And on your current plan, if things go as, you, as they are expected to go, and if you do become financially independent in 67 years, do you see yourself stopping employment at that point in time? Yeah, we would, uh, we're, our family's very interested in long-term travel, uh, kind of slow travel. You know, Columbia sounds lovely, I hear. 
and uh, so that'd be one option. Um, also, just the, we've considered the op- the possibility of uh, potentially kind of negotiating down to where, and it'd be very easy in the roles I'm in to negotiate towards uh, only working while the kids are in school and being more present outside of that, and kind of using the time off or going, you know, fifty percent three quarters time and having summers uh, summers largely available. Um, but you know, the long-term travel is kind of the big one, uh, or downshifting into, into some careers that are maybe more combinations of, of life passions, as well as, you know, some, some extra side income. Do you see yourself as an aggressive career builder? Meaning if you took the private sector job, would you see yourself going and applying for another bigger private sector job two and a half years from now where you'd be making $200,000 a year or two fifty because of your excellent results at this current opportunity? Uh, probably not at one point in my life. That's definitely kind of how I got into the role that I'm in now. Um, but with the family coming on board, uh, priorities have shifted much more towards uh, being present to the family. Um, and, uh, and also just, the relationships I built, as I mentioned, I'd be returning to the nonprofit. So there'd be, I have some really strong relationships and, and in many ways, there's been a long-term plan for me to be there. So yeah. it would be that I would, I'd stick around for a while, um, both out of gratitude and loyalty and also yeah. personal family circumstance. Based upon what you're describing, I think the, to, to me, the favor, uh, the, the weight falls on, on the government job as being probably a better option for you. And here is what I'm thinking and as far as how I get there. First of all, it sounds like both of these jobs are a good fit for you. If one was clearly not a good fit for you, if you were going to go crazy and just be bored out of your mind in the government job, but in the private sector job, you would love it. Well, then that would be obvious. But it sounds like both of these are a good fit. You said you have a good relationship with both of your your potential bosses, etc. You can't, in my mind, it seems inarguable that government jobs are generally going to be far less stress and require less of you in terms of mental commitment and mental stress. When you work for the government, you have a certain set of expectations, but because of the nature of bureaucracy, it's very hard for you to be fired, and it's very hard for the government to impose upon you lots of excessive demands. So you're expected to be there at nine o'clock, great, you're there at nine o'clock, but you can leave at five o'clock. And if the work's not done, in a government position, you just simply say, well, we're the government, right? They have to accept what we say. The work will get done next week. And this leads to a very clear ability for you to segment your work life and your professional and your personal life. Um, in the private sector, that's much less common, right? In the private sector, there's much more of an expectation that whatever it takes, we get the work done. And this would be why most of us who work in the private sector, we tend to work more. Um, we tend to feel more pressure. And there's the pressure of the free market upon us to cause us to perform. That pressure is probably a little bit, that pressure is less intense in the not for profit sector, but I think there's still a difference. And when you compare the benefits, across the board, especially the benefits with that, that are important to you as an early retiree, to me, the government job sounds, um, sounds a whole lot better. It's not a bad compensation rate. Um, you have access to a number of different plans that will help, help you with, you know, with, with everything. Um, the eight weeks of vacation 
and holiday leave to me is probably a much more livable thing for you long term. If you've got eight weeks of vacation per year plus four weeks of sick leave, then with having young children, that means that you can do almost anything that you want to do and still keep working. So to me, I think the pressure for you to actually quit working in six or seven years would be much lower in that kind of system. I mean, I like to travel for long term. Two months of travel per year is a lot of travel. Um, it's a lot of travel. So uh, that kind of job is probably much more livable for you for an extended period of time. And that might mean that you might choose not to quit working in six years or seven years. Uh, it might mean that you're comfortable enough that you do it for 10 years or 15 years or something like that. That's going to be a cushy, um, cushy job. And as long as the work is a decent fit for you, you can go to work, you can work your expected hours, you can deliver as your bosses expect, um, you can go home with a clear conscience and just not worry about it. Um, and then for from the perspective of, of early retirement, the discounted health insurance is a very, very valuable perk. It's one of the most difficult things to handle in the U.S. American system for early retirees. And so especially given that you see yourself as the kind of person who would actually stop working in six or seven years, I think having some discount on the health insurance system uh, would be good. And then finally, my final comment is this. Going from the government sector into the private sector or into the not-for-profit not sector, I think is generally going to be an easier transition than going from the private sector into the government sector. Um, that's I can't prove that. It just feels that way to me. And especially when I think about doing things like part-time work, if you work for the government for the next six years and then you decide to stop working full-time but you want to pick up a part-time job – You'll have your contacts and your uh, connections inside the government, and that will be very employable to somebody in the private market, right? You, you can be a lobbyist of sort, or you can be a consultant. And so those kinds of things would lend themselves very well to a part-time job in the private sector because of the strength of your government resume. So from what you're describing, those are my reasons. I think the weight falls uh, in favor of the government job from what you're saying. Great. Thank you. Yeah, it's been helpful to think through that. Uh, and, you know, the big thing for me, I, I agree with your assessment. I was kind of wondering about the benefits of taxable funds invested versus manipulating various tax advantage funds. Um, but it feels like I, I have some flexibility with both. Yeah, remember that your investment portfolio, your, your investment choices are not entirely tied to the government, to, to the, the system. So I don't think there's that, from what you described, there is some benefit to the pension, but in that kind of pension program, if you want to create that kind of pension program yourself, you can. All right, that's going to be a commercial annuity that's funding, um, it's funding that particular pension program, and it's just going to be an overall part of your compensation. Um, when you're the, the the health insurance that's that's a genuinely valuable business, but you can still do mm -hmm. most of the other stuff, right? You don't have to have an HSA at work to be able to contribute to an HSA. You just need a high deductible health plan. Um, you can still do lots of other investing, and with having a salary, right? You could buy five rental houses in the next five years if you wanted to, just by leveraging your stable government salary to borrow money, buy a house, you know, move into it, uh, do the do the old nomad strategy for five years, and now you have a giant real estate portfolio. So I think you can handle the, the money in an intelligent way. To me, the lifestyle that you described of having eight weeks of paid vacation plus four weeks of sick leave, that's going to pretty much open up to you 
the vast majority of travel or anything that you want to do while you're still working. And when you also have that compounded with the fact that this is a nine to five job um, or whatever the hours are that you're expected to work, the point is that it's constrained to those hours then you won't have a significant amount of work stress with that kind of position. You go to work, you do your job when you're there, you leave. If the children are sick, you say the children are sick and you stay home. And because of the nature of a government job, you can do that without it messing everything up and without feeling like I'm letting the whole team down and whatnot, which is going to be some of the pressure that you'll feel in the private sector. Thank you so much. I appreciate the assessment. My pleasure. And uh, hopefully you'll know great wisdom to figure out which one is best for you. All right, let's go to Adam in Philadelphia. Adam, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, sir? Uh, hi, Josh. Uh, I hope you're doing well. I have two questions. I'll start with the first and we can circle back to the second later. Uh, my question has to do with taxes for someone with multiple citizenships, that someone would be me. I'm 22 years old, single. I was born in the US to Hungarian parents, but I grew up in Canada. So I have three citizenships, uh, American, Hungarian, Canadian. Mm -hmm. I went to school in Canada, did all my summer jobs in Canada. I have Canadian bank accounts, Canadian TFSA, RRSP, the whole nine. As of January of this year, I've moved to the US. Uh, I'm working for a big Fortune 500 company here. I've never paid US taxes. I've never even filed US taxes. I'm aware that this is something that I should have been doing since I started working, uh, although I never have. And so I'm concerned that the IRS might be uh, lurking behind the corner and I was hoping for your advice on how to get compliant. I know this is something that you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. You said you're 20, 22? Yes, sir. Okay. So in your situation, I think it's fairly simple. Um, what you need to look for is the IRS has a program. Uh, I cannot remember the name of it right now, and I can't search for it right at the second, um, but I'll tell you how to find it. So do a web search for um, U.S. citizens tax compliance um, and find a tax, um, a tax lawyer who specializes in uh, in in helping U.S. Uh, here we go. I found it. Relief procedures for certain. I'm looking at the IRS website. Relief procedures for certain former citizens. No, that's not it. So browse around on the IRS website, uh, um, irs.gov, and find the section where they talk about the programs that they have for people bringing themselves into tax compliance. Uh, and again, I'm sorry, I don't I don't remember the name of it. But um, there are. I'm finding lots of lots of resources resources for expat tax professionals, et cetera. And there are lawyers who specialize in this. And so what you will do is you will contact the IRS and you will say, I'm 22 years old. I didn't know that I was supposed to be filing taxes. I have a limited work history and I'd like to bring myself into compliance. They have a number of amnesty programs that you can participate in. And those amnesty programs will allow you to file tax returns for the previous years when you were not compliant um, and then to be free of your legal burden of having been non-compliant. And, and in your situation, this should be a relatively easy and simple thing. You probably weren't making much money. You're 22 years old, et cetera. 
And you'll go ahead, so you'll, you'll create tax returns for the years in which you were liable to file them, for the years in which your income has exceeded the filing threshold of whatever it is, $7,000, $10,000-ish, um, which probably isn't very many years. You'll create those tax returns, but you will be eligible for the foreign earned income exclusion because you were living outside the United States, and thus you will owe no tax. So your only costs will simply be any legal fees that you would incur to have a lawyer and accountant help you with filing for that amnesty program. Uh, and that's what I would do. So if you've got, if you if you have the money to go ahead and start paying, you know, pay. I, I can't imagine in your situation it would be more than a couple thousand dollars of legal fees. Um, but I would go ahead. You may be able to do it yourself. I don't know. I wouldn't. I would wait until I had the money and go ahead and use an attorney as the go between and find an attorney who's who has done who is who's helps people to um, to bring people into tax compliance. Um, but. Uh, that's that's how you do it. Uh, is you just simply f- you'll, you'll file the returns for the years that you didn't file. So you'll you'll grab whatever information you have from your um, from your uh, previous work uh, from your Canadian tax returns wherever you wherever you previously filed. And then you'll go ahead and file those returns. But because you were outside of the country and assuming that you weren't making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, you won't actually owe any tax. You'll just bring yourself into compliance that way. Perfect. And then I guess the the follow up to that, and maybe it's better for the tax lawyers, but going forward, is there anything special I need to do to ensure that the um, Canadian revenue agency doesn't come after me when I'm uh, you know working in the U.S. being paid in U.S. dollars? Yeah. So this is not this is not that difficult. Um, but the biggest thing you want to do is is become Canadian non-tax resident in order to eliminate your filing requirements. So um, you, you won't. The, Canada and the United States have an excellent tax treaty. And working in the United States and living in the United States, you can minimize your taxes through that tax treaty. However, since you're now living in the United States, unless you have some compelling reason to maintain your residential ties with Canada, just simply you would just simply want to become Canadian non-tax resident. So um, the non-residence comes down to the basic facts of life, the fact that you're living now in the United States, not in Canada. You don't have any significant residential ties. You're staying most of the time in the United States. Um, what you should look at is just simply look and say, do I have any other significant connections to Canada? So, you know, do I have my RRSP? What, what should I do with that? Um, <clears throat> the, the other things and, so, and, and, and look at them. Do you think that your, your time in the United States is, is going to be for a long time or is it a fairly short time? What do, you, what do you think? So the work contract I'm on now is going to take me for about three and a half years. I'll probably bounce around a couple different states uh, while I'm there. And given all three of my citizenships, I also might spend some time in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if I'll ever come back to Canada, although I'm 22 years old and single. So everything's kind of, uh, sure. you know, I'm open just about anything at this point. How much money do you have saved in, how much money do you have saved in your retirement plans in Canada right now? Um, very little. I have a couple grand in uh, the TFSA, and then I I have a hundred and fifty dollars in the RRSP that was just put in there to open it and for me to feel financially responsible at sixteen that I'm saving for retirement. But not not much has been put in there. If I were in your shoes, I would go ahead and just simply cash those assets out and sever all of my financial ties with Canada. 
Um, I don't think it's strictly necessary. If you had a lot of money in those accounts, I wouldn't say it's necessary. But right now, the cost for you of ending those those plans will be next to nothing. Assuming I'm, I'm, I have the impression that your income is probably not super high, being 22 years old, uh, and and just kind of just starting on your work life. Um, so I would just go ahead and cash those out and end my financial connections with you with Canada. Um, that way, in the future, you can maintain the benefits. You can always move to Canada, but by becoming fully Canadian non-tax resident and having no ties to the country, you don't own any real estate there. I would I would just go ahead and end my um, end my retirement plans there. If you want to keep one bank account, that's probably okay. If you were wealthy, I would say no bank accounts, no credit cards. But since you're just getting started, it's probably fine for you to have a bank account there. Um, if it were me, I would go ahead and just fully extricate myself from the Canadian tax system. Um, you're going to be in the U.S. tax system, but that way you're only dealing with one system. And then if in the future you want to go to Canada, you can always go to Canada, become resident and tax resident again. Um, but this way your tax obligations will be simple. And as a U.S. citizen now, you would have the ability to travel. You would have the ability to um, do everything with just the U.S. American system. And because of the way that the U.S. American system works, you can keep your entire financial infrastructure in the United States. You have good banks. Banking, better banking, uh, lower cost, lower cost investing in the United States than in Canada. Um, and so you can keep your entire infrastructure in the United States and or choose some other countries that you don't have citizenship in to expand your banking into. But then if you're outside of the United States, then you could qualify for the relevant um you know, the foreign income exclusion, et cetera, for the United States. So if it were me, I would extricate myself from the CRA. I think the IRS is probably easier to work with than the CRA. And uh, certainly the the United States is probably most Canadians' best tax haven. There's a really good book that I recommend by Robert Keats, uh, which which is called Why the United States um, is, I can't remember the t- exact title of it, but he, he it's the a Canadian's best tax haven, the United States. And he makes a strong argument that for most Canadians, the very best, most useful tax haven that they can uh, move their life to in the beginning is the United States. So that's what I would do. Perfect. That sounds great for now. I'll stay on the call if you have time for me at the end. Great. If not, then we'll talk later. Okay, great. Thank you so much. All right. Move on to Trey in Texas. Trey, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, sir? Hey, Joshua. Um, I wanted to ask you about inflation and how concerned I should be about inflation in the United States. Um, you, obviously, we're, we're, we're creating a lot of money. I saw that the other day. I don't know if it's true or not, but it was 40% of the U.S. dollars that are in existence right now have been created in the last 12 months. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's that extreme or not, but it's a lot. So I've got a couple of hundred thousand dollars in cash that I was saving to buy some property, um, multifamily property sometime in the next one to five years or just whenever the right deal presents itself. Um, do you have any suggestions on how to protect that in the meantime? Is the cash in a bank account? Yes, sir. Mostly. So my first suggestion, and this is across the board is that everybody be prepared and have what I call a tunnel set up to be able to protect their assets. 
So, you know, the previous caller was from Canada. So what I routinely recommend to people is that I think everybody should have at least one offshore bank account. And I usually recommend to most U.S. Americans who aren't accustomed and comfortable getting on an airplane and flying to the other side of the world often go to Canada and open a bank account. Um, It's easy to do. You don't need any kind of residency in Canada. You don't need anything except to be able to physically go there to open the account. And that's obviously a problem right now because the Canadian border is closed and they have extremely strict and stringent quarantine requirements now, even for Canadian citizens returning to Canada. So it is a problem right now. But as soon as you can, go to Canada or to some other place, we'll cut to that in a moment, and simply open a bank account. Now, when you do that, what do I recommend? Well, I tell people, go and open a US dollar bank account and open a Canadian dollar bank account. Why? I don't think that you should, if you're going to, if you're saving money to buy assets in the United States, then I think you should keep your money in U.S. dollars. Right now, the U.S. dollar has weakened significantly uh, over the past few months, and it's probably going to continue to weaken. Many analysts believe that it's going to continue to, to weaken, especially with the monetary creation that we see right now. And so I expect the U.S. dollar to continue to weaken. But when you are living and working and investing in a dollar economy, you can't. That, that that's not necessarily a problem, and I don't think that most people should all of a sudden become uh, forex traders trying to do, to predict. Well, if I go ahead and move my U.S. dollars into Swiss francs today, uh, then I'll go ahead and convert them out of Swiss francs three months from now to buy my real estate. Maybe some people can do it. I don't. I think it's a little bit uh, too complex for most people. But what I recommend is very simple. If you will open a tunnel account with an offshore bank account and open one in US dollars and open an account in Canadian dollars, now you have the ability to get your money out if you need to. So how does this work? Okay. Six months ago, I, when we were right in the, the, in the, um, in the, the midst of, I guess it was eight months ago or so, in about March and April of 2020, when everything was looking pretty black. Stock markets were dumping off. We didn't know how severe the coronavirus pandemic would be. We didn't know what exactly the economic fallout would be. The U.S. Um, uh, budget is pl- cratering, et cetera. I got extremely nervous about banking stability, and I got extremely nervous about um, the U.S. dollar stability. I don't I believe that the US dollar is very strong and that it's very unlikely that we're going to face kind of a a, a novel <laughs> the kind of thing that you would write in a novel about a hyperinflation environment. I think it's very unlikely. But I acknowledge that it's possible. And so I'm looking for ways that I can protect myself with minimal risk. And so what I advised clients to do at that time was move money from the United States move money from your U.S. dollar account to a U.S. dollar account with an offshore bank. In keeping your money in U.S. dollars, you're not taking any currency risk. You're not making a bet on currency. You're just keeping your money in U.S. dollars. You're just moving it from a U.S. bank into an offshore bank. Now, if you do start to see significant levels of inflation, your money is already outside of the country, which can help you to protect against likely capital controls. When governments face economic instability, they start to impose significant capital controls and currency controls. They make it illegal for you to change your money out of the failing currency into a foreign currency. So you're protected from that by moving your money into an offshore bank. And now the transaction can be easily accomplished. If you have 
$200,000 in US dollars at your Canadian bank, then you can just simply, with one click of a button on the website, move your $200,000 from your US bank, your US dollar account to your Canadian dollar account at the current exchange rate, thus freezing your, your exposure to US dollars. So the, that's, my, that's, my, that's the simplest, lowest risk plan that I've ever come up with. Create an account offshore, create a tunnel account for US dollars, and you have to have it set up in advance. You have to have it set up so that you can wire money back and forth, and you have to. You should go ahead and wire money back and forth so that your banks get used to the fact that you transfer money back and forth, but you don't have to take any currency risk. You just simply need to have the US dollar account offshore, and then you can go ahead and um, convert it to a foreign currency. For this scenario, almost any foreign currency is fine. Um, it really doesn't matter significantly what currency it is. Obviously, there are good reasons to choose uh, one of the stronger currencies, a euro account, Swiss franc account, Canadian account, etc. The point is, however, you want to have your money outside of the country and you want to be able with a click of the button on your computer to um, click of the button on the computer to convert it to a foreign currency that's not going to be experiencing as much inflation. And then from there, if the facts in the future warrant and you recognize, all right, I'm moving into Canadian dollars right now because there's massive inflation in the United States, but I don't want to stay in Canadian dollars because there might be Canadian inflation in, the, in Canada then. Well, at least you're out of the country. You can go ahead and now move into a euro account or whatever seems to be the appropriate basket of currencies for you to hold at the time. That's my best solution. I acknowledge the fact that that's difficult right now if you don't already have those offshore accounts set up. This is why I emphasize that the time to plan for disaster is long before the disaster ever happened. Last two, Almost two years ago now, I launched my How to Survive and Thrive During the Coming Economic Crisis course, and I emphasized this stuff is easy to do now. Two years ago, you could easily drive across the Canadian border and be welcomed into Canada and do that. Today, you cannot get in. So... Um, if it's not net, if it's not set up now, you need to either find a country that you can bank in right now and set up an account there. This is more difficult than you might imagine because many countries do not have a system where they simply allow tourists to come in and bank. Canada does. There are other countries that do, but many many um, countries require you to. Uh, to have a residence permit or have some significant ties to the country. Uh, many countries get nervous about people coming in and wanting to have bank accounts if they don't have ties to the country. So you, you can try another offshore jurisdiction, or what I would just say is I wouldn't worry too much about it. While I think that the, that it, that kind of planning is important, I'm still not in the hardcore, uh, I don't see significant signs of inflation. I do see the Federal Reserve creating money, but compared to where things could be, I don't think it's that big of a risk right now. Um, so your kind of other backup plan, if you don't do go the offshore banking route, is just simply keep your eye on the markets and then think about what kind of commodities could I move into if I needed to. So let's say that I did start to see significant levels of inflation. What could I do with that? Could I? What would I buy? Would I buy? You would generally buy some kind of hard asset. A monetary asset is ideal, but would you buy Bitcoin? Would you buy gold? Would you buy tools? Right. There are lots of things that you could buy to protect your money if you got into that that system. I don't think the hyperinflationary scenario is is um, is likely. I think 
in the future, some kind of mass inflation scenario, like a 1970s, 8%, 10%. I think that kind of thing is 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 possible. Probable, I, I don't know, right? Possible to probable somewhere in that range. Um, but I think that in that scale, I don't think that that level of inflation is the kind of level where you would just all of a sudden go out and buy gold, right? I think that that's uh, that's a a doable level inf- of inflation that you would press forward with your business activities, um, kind of as as expected. So that's my answer, Trey. That sounds great. Um, if you don't mind, I'd also like to hang on the call, and if you have time to circle back, I'll ask another one. But you. Your answer was was awesome for the inflation, so I appreciate it. Cool. I'll uh, put you on the list, and let's see what we got time. John of Pennsylvania, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, sir? Hey, Joshua. Thanks for taking the call. My pleasure. Um, I uh, was considering uh, taking a, a road trip cross country uh, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the spring and summer. Uh, since you've done so much uh, road travel and camper travel, uh, I was actually considering just doing this uh, in hotels and and whatnot since I'm not set up uh, with, a, with a pop-up or anything like that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just curious your advice on um, uh, kind of uh, uh, both pacing, duration, uh, places to go that were your favorite in, you know, the middle of the country, so-called flyover states, you know, to kind mm-hmm. of take our time. Um, the only thing I know we're looking to not do is, uh, is uh, you know, pack and unpack into a hotel every single day. So, right. you know, uh, depending on the full duration of the trip, you know, and how far we want to go. Um, you know, uh, uh, maybe a few days at least in each hotel, but um, I'm, I'm really not sure about long-term travel trade-offs. And does uh, uh, any advice you have on that, or any thoughts you have on that, I, I, I could use? I Absolutely. Um, you have, I think, two children, right? And how old are they? Yeah, I have two children. Uh, the boys are um, uh, five and seven. Five and seven. Okay. So I'll I'll give you my thoughts on this from having done both both of the above, all of the above. I generally, from a financial analysis perspective, I don't believe that RV camping saves most people money. If you're going on trips for two weeks of annual vacation, three weeks of annual vacation, many people buy a camper and they think that, well, if I have this camper, I'm going to save lots of money going camping for two weeks a year. It doesn't happen, uh, in my opinion, because campers experience such massive depreciation and there's so many expenses associated with camping of uh, you know buying a vehicle that can tow a trailer, buying a trailer, buying all the stuff for it, fixing the thing when it's broken, paying the campground expenses, etc., that I don't argue to people that camping is a financially efficient thing to do. If they're going on two or three weeks of trips a year, I think that if you're going to travel for two or three weeks, you can go to nice resorts if you like that and do it. What I do argue is that camping with children is, in my opinion, a really, really ideal way for a family to travel. I don't like going to hotels with my children because there's generally nothing to do in the hotel room that's productive. And so you go to a hotel room with a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. You go, even if it's a nice hotel, you have the amenities of the hotel. You know, hopefully they have a pool. Maybe they have some kind of other games and, and, and things to do. And then you have your room. And what do you have to do in a room? Well, you have a TV. You have their books. You have 
you know, their their games, their digital games, their tablets, or whatever you're doing. But there's not much to do. There's not a lot of things where, where where children can play, and so you can't generally allow your children just to go play unsupervised in the the hotel. And so I find traveling in hotels with children pretty stressful. It's not stressful if you go to a resort and you have a lot of activities there, but just kind of a standard hotel. I find it pretty stressful because you got this little itty bitty room, you've got one or two chairs. It just it's 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 no fun. Now, when I compare that to camping in RV parks, national parks, state parks, um, etc., I find the situation totally different. Because if I take a camper into a state park or an RV park or something like that, then now I've got a big beautiful outside where it's expected that my children can run around. And generally speaking, with a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, generally speaking, most campgrounds are contained enough where you could feel confident about sending them to the playground. Or they can feel confident about having, you know, riding around the, the camping loop. Uh, if you bring a couple of bikes, some scooters, some bicycles, you can send your children outside and they can play very happily and very safely outside for two hours straight, just riding their bicycles around the loop and poking around in the woods and you know catching spiders and, and whatever it is that they that children do. And there's often other children in the campground, which means that often they can have the chance to play with other children in a more an easier way than hotels. And so I would be willing to spend more money going and camping because it makes for a better environment for me. Um, you don't just have to sit them down in front of the TV and turn on a movie to, to figure out what to do and how to keep these children from going crazy in the hotel room when they're full, full of boundless energy. You can just say, go outside, I'll call you when it's time for dinner, and then you look out the window, you poke, you peek, you peek your nose around, you set some boundaries, and, and generally, uh, I think they have more fun. In addition, camping often has lots of work associated with it that children can help with. So the work of setting up a fire, right? Um, it's really fun for children to have a fire. And so now all of a sudden you have a really healthy evening's entertainment where, uh, where you, you know, at 5.30, you, set, you get some firewood, you build the fire. Of course, that's hard to do because the wood is wet, so it takes you 50 minutes to set, get a fire going. But you teach your children how to build a fire. Then they can happily sit and watch the fire and poke it and burn sticks in the fire. Then you have dinner. Then you have marshmallows and s'mores. And then you all just sit around the fire and stare at it and talk to each other. And so it creates this really healthy environment where you have time with your children, time to spend with them, time to talk to them, instead of sitting around a little itty bitty table in a hotel room wondering what do we do now, right? It's just very different in that, in that sense. Uh, similarly, there's other work. You, again, the work is you can say to the children, go into the woods there and collect dead sticks on the ground so that we can burn them. Well, there's an hour and a half to keep them busy while you and your wife make dinner. You can say, let's wash dishes, right? We've got to wash the dishes. And so you can easily put the, um, the dish pans on the picnic table. Now all of the things that are annoying at home when they start having water fights and blowing bubbles and everything, well, you got time and it's not a big deal if the water spills on the picnic table. So I prefer camping because of the lifestyle. The other thing of the lifestyle that I really appreciate is the lack of stress and especially the lack of financial stress. In the United States, hotels are generally very expensive, even for mediocre hotels. So you can drive across the country, and when you're driving somewhere, you're kind of stuck to, to what's available in a certain place, and you don't know where you're going to be. 
And so you know, I drove across the country last year and I was with a, a friend of mine and we're driving across the country and we're just two adult men driving, driving uh, across the country and we're driving hard because we were making progress across. We had, we, we had a goal, but we had to pull in and I'm, and I'm paying, finding myself stuck paying a hundred dollars a night for this dirty motel in the middle of Texas because that's what's there. And I don't want to drive for another two hours to try to find something else. And so you're, you're kind of stuck with what's available. And it really bugs me to pay $105 a night for a dirty hotel in the middle of Texas. I don't like staying in those places, and I feel like I'm wasting money. And so now with children now, it, it becomes even worse. Because at least my friend and I, we're both adults, right? We, if, if we can keep going. But you can't press your children that hard when you're road tripping. You, you, you get to the point where they're done, and you want to get out of the car and do something. And so you pull up to some random hotel somewhere. It's going to cost you a hundred bucks for a for a junky room that you don't really want to touch touch anything in it, because that's where you happen to be. And now there's nothing to do. Um, there's some you know tiny little swimming pool out back that's too cold to swim in, or there's too many drunk people who really don't want to take your children to that environment right now. Um, and so I find that stressful. I find it stressful to be stuck um, paying whatever is available. However, when I have a camper. I, f I find myself totally at peace because if I have a camper, not a pop-up, but a camper where we can sleep in, then now I know that I can pull over anywhere and I can be totally fine. If the children are done, I'll just pull over into a rest area and we'll sleep in the rest area. Now, there's not there may not be that great amenities, but there's usually a, some woods and I can take them and find a playground or we can go and throw a frisbee in the woods in the grass while, while mom gets dinner ready or something like that. Um, if we're in a, a bad part of town, we just drive to a Walmart, stay in the Walmart parking lot. And once they're in their beds, then everything is normal. And then because they have their stuff, they have their bed, they have their books, they have their things. It's actually easier to keep them contained and settled. We're not moving into a new hotel room and you just have what's in your backpack or the suitcase. You have your bed, go, go, you know, go away and do read a book. Um, and so you can get some peace. So I love the lifestyle of traveling in a camper with children and it makes me really enjoy traveling because it's just so low i find it extremely low stress um i would pay more if it cost me more to have a camper because i find it with children a very low stress way to travel now i don't think it actually has to cost more and if you're traveling for an extensive period of time then it does save you a lot of money and so think back to my hotel example. I think that although you can find a $39 you know, red roof inn in the middle of Georgia right off of I-75 or something, you can find those things out there. Most of the time, in my experience, I budget for something like $100 for a hotel, just a standard we're sleeping here hotel. Not a, it's not a resort in the United States, I mean. But I'm not going to be surprised by $129. That's going to be a standard cost. That goes pretty far if you're going to be on the road for six weeks, and it goes pretty far in terms of the costs of of an RV, a little trailer, uh, you know, a drivable motorhome, things like that. So, for the lifestyle reasons, I would pay more, but I don't think you have to pay more. I think that the RV is is for traveling with children is a cheaper thing to do because you can control your expenses based upon where you stay. If you want to go and you want to pay. Uh, $200 a night to camp in, at Disney's Fort Wilderness or to camp at a, a Jellystone um, RV park and pay $100 a night, that's, that's available. And you'll love it, right? You'll love the amenities of that. But if you don't want to spend any money tonight because you're just trying to drive across a place where, where 
you need to drive, the ability to pull over and spend the night at a rest area and pay nothing for that and not have to go and eat. That's the other thing is preparing food is also something I find extremely stressful traveling without amenities. I don't like eating at restaurants because generally you have too much food and it's very hard to eat healthy food in many of those situations. And then the cost adds up when you're buying four meals a time, three meals a day. So you can do stuff out of a cooler and whatnot, but it's so much nicer to have your own fridge, your own thing. So I'm trying to sell the lifestyle because I've experienced it. If I were going to do any kind of significant trip more than a week or two, and if I'm going to travel across the country with children, uh, I'm going to buy some kind of RV and use some kind of RV for that. The best, if you want a, a no-brainer solution, what I would tell you is if you don't have an RV, go to Cruise America and buy one, try a rent, rent it if you want to try, but buy a Cruise America former rental. And with two children, you can easily get away with their 25 foot or um, the smaller one that they have. I think it's 23 foot actually. They have a 28 foot one that they sell and a 23 foot one that they sell. And it's going to be something like $30,000 but it'll give you a good solid class C that allows you to drive in it has all the stuff that you need it's a it's a it's a it's the as far as i'm concerned it's one of the simplest ways for people just to get an rv that's going to work and it's going to need what they what they do but i i would personally choose the rv because of the lifestyle of traveling with children across the united states okay yeah i appreciate that that's that's great advice um yeah I, and you wouldn't have concerns about buying a rental rv as far as uh you know, had, had had a lot of drivers and been beat up and all that stuff. I mean, I guess one of the reasons I had considered going hotels, I remember hearing your, your uh, discussion about, you know, RVs do cost a little bit more, but I understand your argument for, um, uh, you know, the, I kind of sympathize with all those arguments and having the slower, mm -hmm. slower pace and giving things, kids things to do. Um, one thing I had said I didn't want to do is, you know, buy a whole new car or truck to pull a pop up or a, or a, or a trailer. So, you know, having the trailer is one cost, but having a whole new car that we don't need was another cost. But I guess I can think about, you know, buying smart and reselling it when I get back and all that stuff. But the Cruise America thing is something I'll have to look into off the, uh, consider buying one of their old ones if, if you think that's a good route. Yeah. So, so there, it's an unlimited conversation. So I have, so I'm, I, I, to be clear, what I'm saying to you is regarding traveling with children. Now, I've given the exact opposite to couples who were older who didn't have young children, um, and I would I would give the different advice possibly to people who didn't ha who had older children, right? If, if there was somebody who had older children, and maybe they were going to do a mixture, right? They were going to go ahead and have a tent um, that they were going to use, set up tents in a national park, uh, and and also stay in hotels. Then I think that that can work really well, right? I wouldn't be scared about that if I got a 12 year old and a 14 year old. Um, we could load up in tents and it'd be great because they can do the work and they, they're useful. But a five year old and a seven year old are very minimally useful, and so that kind of stuff just creates a ton of work for for you and your wife. For an older couple who can go to a nice hotel room and enjoy just simply being in the hotel room and they're not running around you know needing to get their wiggles out and the fact whether they go to the pool or not like now all of a sudden when and then they're often comparing it saying well either i buy a hundred thousand dollar rv or we travel for six weeks a year in hotel rooms i think you can make a good argument for the hotel rooms in that situation but i don't enjoy being in hotel rooms with my children 
unless it's a place where it has a resort and it has lots of activities, which is not kind of what you're describing traveling across the country. So on the RV, on the RV setup, if you're willing to deal with the hassle, I don't think they have to cost that much. Um, your cheapest thing to do is buy a travel trailer and you can go down all day long and get a travel trailer for, you know, a used travel trailer in good condition for 15 grand, something in a 25 foot range, 20 with two children, you can get away with a 20 footer, um, you know, something that 20, 25 foot, you can get those all day long for 15 grand that are five to nine years old. Um, your maximum depreciation, if you kept it for a year or two, let's say you lose three grand, four grand, something like that. That that's not that much, and I don't think you have to if you're good if you if you can buy smart. Um, if you stick with a trailer in that price in that size range, something that's a five thousand pound trailer, an eight you know seven thousand pound trailer, which there's tons of them in that range, then if you need a car, you just go get get a get a five thousand dollar F one fifty. Um, you know, something like that. Uh, you can do an SUV uh, with a, with that size of trailer. I wouldn't do, you know, a pilot. I would do a bigger, you know, but an expedition can work. Something like that. And so I would just grab a five thousand dollar F one fifty and a, a you know a ten or fifteen thousand dollar twenty five foot or twenty foot trailer, depending on on how big you want. And I think you're you're good. And so let's say you use it for a year or two and you sell it. Yeah, you'll sell the F one fifty for if you if you pay eight grand for it, you'll sell it for seven. If you buy the trailer for twelve, you'll sell it. You'll put you know a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars into keeping it up, and then you'll you'll um, you'll sell it for ten. You know. So when I you know when I had my rig, I I did the whole thing, um, and I didn't. I came out basically even. Uh, and so I think all the same principles apply. Now, if you do the Cruise America route where you buy one of their rental RVs, I'm not concerned about buying one of their rental RVs because while I do believe that people have have used them and uh, and used them hard, I, I, vehicles are made to be used. Uh, so somebody drove their RV at 70 miles an hour or 75 miles an hour across the Arizona desert. I mean, they're not no one's joyriding an RV. No one's spinning donuts in the parking lot. They're just driving fast and maybe pushing the gas pedal down. Well, the, the cars are built to handle that. Right. And then those rental RVs are built to be tough. They're custom built for Cruise America. Um, they're built to be tough. And they're used. They're well used. Um, but they're, they're adequate. And so I would look at that as... If you want to get into a drivable RV where you're inside of it, it's it, you're, it's, you're a, class, a class C... Um, Basically, it's I can pay, you know, thirty grand for this this RV that's a rental. It's got a hundred thousand miles on it. It's built tough, but it's five years old. It's got a good roof. It's got you know a generator. It's got all the stuff that works. I can probably go and sell it because it's a rental. It's not going to have a strong resale, so maybe I can sell it for twenty three or twenty four at some point in the future. Um, that's different than going and paying sixty five for a five year old Class C. So if you can find a good Class C that's being sold for cheaper, I think you can come out better ahead because it doesn't have the baggage of the rental RV. But if you want something that's just fast, that's a fair deal, that you're going to lose five grand in depreciation, I think the rental RV is something worth considering. Okay. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's that's great stuff. And uh, I, I fully agree. I mean, uh, especially for keeping the kids busy and all that stuff, we, we plan to do at least a little bit of car camping, but um, we may consider that. But the, uh, yeah, just keeping them busy with the fire. It's basically what I do in the backyard anyways. I uh, just wanted to uh, you know, extend that across the country. So it's a good plan. So, if, you, if you're willing to do the tent, um, and with a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, it'll be fun for them. I think the biggest thing is how much work is it for your wife? 
Um, if you're willing yeah. to do the tent, then I think a mixture of the two can also be something that you should consider. So yeah. when I was growing up, we did this a lot. We had a, a pop-up camper, but we didn't all fit in the pop-up camper, so we also had a tent. And so what my parents would do, we would travel across the country. We never traveled full-time. Our longest trips were three and a half weeks, right? We went from Florida to Maine or from Florida to Montana, things like that. But And we did it in three and a half weeks, which is fast. But what we would do is we would go to a national park or a state park, and we would set up at that national park and that state park for several days. And when you have a tent and you're setting things up, that works fine. Uh, and then in between, if we were in a city or we were just traveling, then we would stay at a hotel. And so there were many times where we're leaving Colorado and we got to get to Florida in two and a half days. Well, we're not stopping and setting up the tent or trying to find a nice park. We're just staying at one of those hotels. And so if you don't want to own an RV or you don't want to own one yet, then I think you could handle that. It's just really hard to do that for weeks and weeks and weeks. So if you've got enough friends that you can sure. stay with or family, and that could just be one thing, then yeah, you don't have to buy another car, get a nice tent, get some nice cots or whatever it is that, that makes your family comfortable. And then just don't, don't go too fast. If you set up a tent and you stay somewhere for two or three nights, and then you travel from there, you do the hikes, et cetera, I think that's a, a good way to do it. And with a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, they, you know, I think they could handle that. I've got I, I've got I've got babies, and so <laughs> tent camping with yeah, babies right, right. is a much bigger hassle because they're just dirty all the time, and it's frustrating. So, um, but you don't yeah, have ba you don't uh, have babies anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much. That gives me so much to to kind of go on and uh, and plan out and um, and consider the cost of all the options. Uh, so I got some homework now. So thank you. I my pleasure. It. Yeah, my pleasure. So I didn't mean to cut you off, but I did. All right, we go to Lucas in New Jersey. Lucas, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, sir? Hey, Josh, can you hear me okay? Yes, sir. Sounds good. Okay, great. Hey, so I had a question about HSAs. Um, so I'm uh, engaged to be married. I have two HSAs to my name from two different employers, and I, I know already that I take them with me. Uh, that has happened, but they're still uh, with two uh, separate um, uh, uh, accounts. Uh, mm -hmm. to, to, uh, to, uh, what's the C word that you would use to describe those? Um, I can't think of it. Yeah, I'm not sure. Anyway, go ahead. Anyway, um, so two separate HSAs, and my fiance has one, and we we were talking about it, and just want to get some guidance on what we should be doing with uh, these HSAs. You know, is there any reason that, or is there any reason or ability that we would want to roll those into one? Um, what benefits might I lose? Um, and, and more importantly, when we do eventually get married. Uh, is, is the reimbursement length of an HSA only go back as far as the uh, original account holder? Uh, because obviously I'm, well, not obviously, but I'm, I'm a couple years older. And so uh -huh. my HSAs tend to go back further. So would we want to keep those so that we can eventually submit reimbursements against uh, for them for older receipts? I'm, I'm trying to piecemeal how, how to optimize multiple HSAs for uh, different age uh, holders. Understood. Are you using your HSAs in a normal way, as in you're putting money in them and you're using them for expenses, or are you are you using them in the aggressive, you know, mad scientist uh, use an HSA to fund your early retirement way? Uh, more more along the mad scientist uh, idea okay. of you know submitting expenses uh, twenty years from now once the interest has accrued. Okay, got it. So I think 
that you I don't think you can roll over an account from your HSA into your wife's HSA after you're married. I don't think that can work. Okay. If you set up a joint account, I'm not sure you can transfer it into that. I, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, that would be, I think, what I would do is I would call the custodian. I think that was the C word you were looking for. That, that is. <laughs> I would yeah. call the custodian and ask them that question. They should be. They should know those those laws enough to to make to answer the question. I I don't know the answer to it. What I would think I would do is if she has an HSA and I have an HSA, I don't see why I don't see any real benefit to commingling them. So I would just probably leave those accounts there as long as they're not, you know, having high expenses associated with maintaining those accounts. I'd probably leave them alone and I would just start a new joint HSA. Um, because of that that issue of like rolling money over. I, I don't know. My, my guess would be that you can't roll it into her account, but you probably could roll it into a joint account uh, and then and, and co-mingle it later. But you, you have to ask the custodian. I don't know the answer. With receipt question, I think this is one of those areas where there's the letter of the law and then there's what's practical. So on the letter of the law, it would go back to yeah, you would have your oldest account. And so that would also would be a good reason. If you're doing the hardcore, you know, mad scientist, use your HSA as a retirement account plan, then I think keeping the original account with that initial inception date would be what you needed to do because that would give you the maximum timeline. But I honestly think that a lot of that stuff will just come out in the wash. I, I haven't heard stories of the IRS auditing people because they submitted um, their receipts from you know on on their HSAs. Now maybe if you accumulate two hundred thousand dollars in your HSA and then you turn fifty five years old and then one year you submit a hundred thousand dollars of receipts from the nineteen eighties or <laughs> that was too extreme. Um, you're you're in the year two thousand and forty five and you submit a hundred thousand dollars of, re of receipts from the year two thousand and twelve. Maybe that would get audited, but I think a lot of that stuff would just would just come out in the wash. You would you would here's the receipt, here's the account, and and how are they going to find the records on that stuff? So. In summary, I don't know the specific answer of moving it to a joint account. My guess is yes, but ask the custodian, and I would probably just keep the old account with the initial inception date unless there was some compelling reason to move it into a joint account, such as uh, lower expenses on maintaining the account, something like that. Okay, great. Thanks. Uh, I will talk to the custodian and thank you also for the recommendation of the personal MBA by Josh Kaufman. I've gotten it started and Good. going real, real well so far. It's a great book. Huh? It's one of those things that I think every business owner should have on their uh, on their nightstand or on their corner of their desk or you know on the little stand next to their toilet or something where they could just pick it up and flip through a chapter and then think about it with regard to their business. So I'm glad that you're finding value in it. Thanks a lot. All right. We move to, who was it? Uh-oh. Other, our others dropped off. So Luke's listening. We'll go to Trey. We'll go back to Trey. I think, Trey, you had another question. Go ahead. Yes, sir. It's another travel question. All right. Um, it seems popular today. So um, we are expecting our first child in August. Um, and I'll, I just kind of want a sanity check. My wife works for the VA. She's a pharmacist, and the federal employees have um, 
12 weeks of maternity leave paid, and then you can use up to another four weeks of sick leave. So she's going to be off for 16 weeks. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, and I've, uh, on your recommendation actually moved into a uh, work from home scenario with my employer that I thought would have never been attainable until everything that's transpired over the last 12 months. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've got that flexibility and I never having a baby, certainly never having traveled with a baby. um, Would I be crazy to pick a couple of places and stay for maybe a month at a time and nice Airbnbs and just kind of use that as an opportunity to, um, explore some different areas, uh, you know, with a newborn or is that, is that, is that just too wild? <laughs> I think it's very probably too wild. Um, I think okay. that would be really hard on your wife. Um, the first time around for a new mother, it's hard to learn to be a new mother. It's hard. It's a brand new set of skills. One of the things that I have some standard speeches that I always give to any any of our friends who are expecting their first baby, and one of the aspects of that is we talk about birthing. You know, here's what you should know. Here's our advice. Here's some things, the resources that we found helpful. Here's some ways that you can think about the kind of birth experience that you want to have, etc. But one of the things that I always try to emphasize is that what I was underprepared for when I was a first-time father was the fact that the birth was only one thing that we needed to prepare for, but the time after birth was much more difficult than I expected. Um, We planned a lot for the birth, and we were ready for what happened after the birth, you know, for, for the new baby, but it was harder than I thought it would be. So things like breastfeeding, right? Um, assuming that your wife would intend to breastfeed her baby, it's hard for most new mothers to learn how to breastfeed a baby. It take, it's a whole set of skills that they've never experienced previously and probably don't know. And so um, it, it's even if you have the world's, so first of all, even if you have the world's greatest and smoothest childbirth, you have a, a natural vaginal birth, everything goes great, you have a, a glowing story of how smooth and easy it was, you still have to remember, and this is very important for you as a husband, you have to remember that childbirth is a traumatic medical event. It is a serious traumatic medical event when everything goes well. And so you need to, it's very important that you plan in the first couple of weeks to do everything for your wife and to make sure that she is well cared for. Because one of the things that, especially, again, first-time moms can happen is they like, well, I feel great, right? We had a great experience. Here's the baby. I feel great. And then they push it too hard. They do too much physical activity. And because the wounds of childbirth are internal, um, it's hard to see, right? You don't think of your wife as being sick because, well, she looks fine. She's happy. She's full of endorphins. Like, she's in, everything's good. No, she still needs to be in bed. She still needs to rest. She needs time to simply rest. Then she needs time to get to know the baby. She needs time to just snuggle and enjoy the baby. And the baby needs that in order to build the proper emotional bonds. And so you want her to be in a very comfortable place, to be in a place where she has everything she needs around her, and to be able to properly bond with the baby. She needs to bond with the baby in the first few weeks. And so, you know, moving around a bunch is not a good plan. Now, sometimes everything does go easy, easily. And I think that for, you know, Again, future babies, probably so, right? My wife, having had four babies, 
has more experience now, and to me it's very obvious that dealing with a newborn is actually pretty easy, right? So if we had a baby, another baby, and that baby was a month old, I mean, we, with, our, with our fourth baby, we traveled when our baby was three weeks old, four weeks old, something like that. We got on an airplane and, and um, we traveled. So, and it wasn't a big deal. You still have to protect for that first few weeks, but but you still need to make sure that she has time to learn. And so the skills of breastfeeding, the skills of caring for the baby, all of those things take time for her to learn. In addition, I would just point out that a lot of times babies have weird little problems that take time to figure out. Um, our second child was extremely sick as a baby. Um, she had GERD and, um, uh, what's the other one? The, 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 uh, acid, the, and, and colic. She had GERD and colic. And so she was just a miserable little baby. And so sometimes you have a miserable baby and those first few months are brutal. And then the final thing I would point out is that your wife will not want to go and travel and go and see sites when she is taking care of a newborn, um, just simply because of the amount of round-the-clock care that the newborn requires. So babies eat you know, every three hours, every four hours, because they have itty-bitty tiny stomachs, and so they need to eat every three or four hours, and that's around the clock. And so her sleep patterns will be messed up, all of that stuff. So you want her to be in the most comfortable place possible. You want to make sure that the place that she gives birth is where she's totally relaxed, totally confident, and you want to make sure that she has um, the time and the space to... Uh, to, to nest with the baby and that she, she's just totally comfortable so she can bond with the baby and learn those new skills of motherhood. So um, I would not try to go around a bunch of places. Now, would I go somewhere for a birth, like birth tourism? There are That's hard. I think it's really hard for a first-time baby, but I think there are people who do it. But even in that situation, I wouldn't go to many places. I would have one place. I would set up a really nice environment there, and then just plan to be in that one place so that she can be cared for and protected during those first few weeks of uh, of the baby's life. Man, that's that's great information. I appreciate that. So probably what we're going to do then is not plan anything. And since she'll be off for 16 weeks, we'll just see how she feels towards the end of that. And then maybe we could pick one place if we wanted to go. And maybe it's just to go visit family for a week or two. Yeah. If, if in the past, when we have been expecting a baby, I put everything on hold because you just don't know, right? You just don't know. And so you do everything you can to prepare for the optimal circumstances, but you don't know, right? You don't know if the the childbirth is smooth or the childbirth is very difficult. You don't know if the baby is perfectly happy and healthy or if the baby is sick or handicapped in some way. Um, you don't know what the baby is going to experience in that first few months, Um and so, and, and, then, and then again, it takes time. It takes time for you to learn the skills of caring for a new baby, and it takes time for her to learn the skills of caring for a new baby. So I would not, um, I wouldn't make any plans. I would keep the schedule wide open. I would plan that we're going to stay at home and we're going to hang out and we're going to be together and we're not going to go anywhere. Um, and then if at some point, um, every you find that everything is going well. Mama's healthy. The baby's healthy and happy. Um, you know, we're working things out. Then yeah, then you can go. You can travel. And so at this point, I consider a newborn a relatively easy baby to travel with. It's easier to travel with a newborn than it is with a two-year-old. But that's after some experience of of working with newborns. Great. That's what we'll do then. Thanks so much. Good deal. All right, we'll go back to Adam and we'll finish up with Adam. You said you had another question, Adam. Go ahead, please. 
Yes, sir. So similar vein uh, having to do with me moving from Canada to the U.S. I was hoping if you had any advice on how to quickly build my credit in in the States. Uh, I've read a lot of the sort of standard advice and I plan on following through with most of it. I think the unique situation that I'm in is that I do have uh, very good credit, at least for a 22 year old, good credit in Canada. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I was hoping that maybe I could leverage that some way. Um, I have an existing account with American Express. And so I know they have um, both a Canadian and a U.S. subsidiary, likewise with my Canadian bank. Any words of wisdom in this area? Those are good ideas. Um, I've never done this personally, moved from Canada to the United States, and I've not worked with someone, nor have I researched it. So my advice is simply from a generalized knowledge. But I think I would start with both of those ideas. I would call American Express, and I would explain to them, I would I would apply for a new American Express card under my U.S. social security number. I don't know the best way to do it. I would I would call them and talk to an agent, explain the situation to them, and maybe have them do it manually. It would be hard, I think, to, to fill it in on the website in an appropriate way. But since you already have an American Express card in Canada... I would go ahead and you know apply for one of the the blue cash or something like that that's easy to get with American Express uh, under your U.S. Social Security number. And then the same thing if your Canadian bank has an American um, subsidiary or or partner, then uh, I would talk to that and I would explain again the situation and just simply apply under your U.S. Social Security number. Those two things I would guess would probably work. Um, if it doesn't work, then I would say just simply start the standard process of the standard advice. If necessary, start with a secured credit card. Nothing wrong with that. And then just simply be aggressive about about uh, gathering new credit cards and applying for new credit cards in the United States. And you can do it very quickly. A few months of a, of a secured credit card, starting, I mean, you, starting with zero, do some research on some of the credit cards that are designed for new um, new. Uh, borrowers, uh, some of the credit cards that are targeted at college students, um, open an account with a bank, uh, a new account with a U.S. American bank and get their credit card, open an account with a credit union and get their credit card. And in you know four or six months, something like that, um, you could get any credit card that you want. And then just follow the, the advice that I teach in the credit card course about systematically um, expanding your credit lines, systematically building your portfolio and keeping your credit score high and then making sure you have the infrastructure there for that. And yeah, you can do it very quickly. Um, in addition, um, you should consider for maximum, um, for maximum credit score, then you might consider going ahead in the beginning, uh, borrowing some money with some line of credit other than a credit card. So take out a small car loan, take out a small student loan, something like that. Um, a couple thousand dollars is sufficient. That will massively increase your credit score very quickly and then make getting credit cards very easy. Great. That's perfect. I'm working through your career and income planning course now, and I think the credit card is is going to be the next one up. Thank Good. you very much. Awesome. My pleasure. All right. That rounds out our calls for today. Thank you all uh, for calling in. A bunch of good questions. Let me see what closing comments I have for you today. I think the closing comments that I would just simply focus on is in what we what I said with regard to how you need to plan ahead. Um, 
I think that was probably some of the more important ones, but just simply planning ahead. Um, notice that the inflation concerns, there are inflation concerns. The caller was is correct on uh, what he said about the amount of money that is being created right now in the United States. Um, it's bad. Um, we are, we've just reached a, a record where the total national debt equals the total annual budget in the United States. It's bad and it's going to get worse. So uh, again, I, I, I'm, I'm not a, a catastrophist or an extremist. I'm not predicting impending doom. One of the things that, that I have become convinced of is that the, you know, the Mad Max scenario, the, the everything falls apart super fast. It's just not realistic. Um, last night I was watching some videos from a uh, Venezuelan YouTuber and uh, I think his name is Juan Guerrera, something like that. And he was in, Car in um, Caracas in Venezuela. And you, you're, you, here you are observing, it was, it was in Spanish, so if you speak Spanish, go and watch it. But what you see in a total financial collapse is the fact that everything looks pretty normal. There's tremendous problems on all sides, but it doesn't look like, you know, Bosnia, uh, at least not in a place like Venezuela. It doesn't look like Bosnia. There's tremendous danger, tremendous physical conflict, lots and lots of violence, but it doesn't look like Bosnia. It looks much more like a wacky, messed up system. So I have spent a lot of time over the years trying to caution people about how difficult things can be and about the fact that they need to we all need to prepare for things to be difficult and i believe that that is absolutely true we do need to prepare for things to be difficult and we need to be protected against you know those things happening but it's not it's not mad max it's not so set up your infrastructure in advance and then you'll have the best. Those are the best solutions that I, I have for um, for those scenarios. Thank you all so much for listening. I'd love to talk to you next week. If you would like to join, go to Patreon, search for Radical Personal Finance and join me on next week's Q&A show.